one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is episode 517 for the week of Monday, May 27th, 2013. You'll notice that my audio is a little bit different because I am currently on the road in Arizona, and I am Sawyer Rosenstein, and also joining us here with a little bit of a different voice is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Yeah, my audio is a little different for a different, whole different reason there, Sawyer. Uh, how you doing tonight? Uh, and uh, again, safe trip back to uh, the uh, the East Coast later. Thank you, and I'm doing quite well. And uh, yeah, your voice would probably be better as a jazz DJ at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, hoping you're feeling well enough tonight. Um, Jim's a little sick, and hoping that you're feeling a lot better so we can get into some great stuff today. Oh, I wouldn't. Sorry, believe me. I, I, what we're going to talk about tonight is something I wished I, I, I should have been there for, but because of a whole bunch of stuff that happened, uh, I wasn't. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, about uh, your, your experiences, and I'll just sort of live vicariously through, uh, through what you had here. Sounds good. All right. So before we get into that, obviously we have to cover a quick bit of space news that's going on. In fact, as we record, uh, we seem to be doing this the last couple of weeks of covering Soyuz as we record the episodes. And uh, as you'll recall, last time the Expedition 35 crew, the last three members of them, returned down. Well, today, on May 28th, 2013, just a Tuesday, the Soyuz TMA-09M lifted off from Baikonur, Kazakhstan, at 4.31 p.m. Eastern Time, carrying the three crew members of the Expedition 36 part of the International Space Station. And that is the Soyuz commanded by Fyodor Chenkin of Roscosmos. We also have Flight Engineer Karen Nyberg, who's American, and then Flight Engineer Luca Parmitano from ESA. So that is the crew that will be meeting up with Chris Cassidy, Alexander Mesurkin and Commander Pavel Vinogradov. So we got a good crew that'll be up there spending time on Expedition 36 when they dock. I think they're going to be doing it as they did last time again today. Yes, this is another one of those uh, quick uh, quick ride up uh, flights. We're going to see a docking tonight actually at uh, 10:16. Uh, Eastern Standard, Eastern Daylight Time, excuse me, with hatch opening planned at 11:30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Um, the the focus of this one, as I, if I recall, with uh, Karen Eiberg saying that a lot of stuff they're going to be doing on on this flight is is concerning um, uh, the astronauts' vision. As you know, there've been reports of uh, some of uh, some of the uh, the vision on some of the astronauts sort of just slightly you know, 
deteriorated after after a long duration flight and the idea is to try to figure out why exactly that's happening so some of the experiments they have planned for this flight are going to be paying more attention to uh to ocular health than anything else, but uh, also you know the, the the usual battery of uh, ISS experiments coming up. But uh, this is also going to be a very busy, busy um, uh, iteration too for a lot of uh, visiting vehicles and ex- one other visiting vehicle that is probably going to happen on the Expedition Thirty Six Thirty Seven increment is uh, Orbital Science's uh, Cygnus vehicle. It will probably be, this crew will probably be the first uh, crew to go ahead and uh, receive uh, that vehicle as it docks for an official call and for an official cargo run to the ISS. So that's kind of exciting. And of course, we we talked about that extensively uh, a couple of weeks back and we'll continue. We'll have some other things planned for for that uh, for that particular vehicle, so we'll talk about that more uh, in uh, in later shows. But uh, again, this is going to be a really exciting increment uh, for the ISS, and and uh, again, it will be a good uh, good experiment run for uh, for the crew. So, uh, looking forward to uh, to a good successful run for uh, Expedition Thirty Six Thirty Seven. Yes, indeed. Best of luck to the crew. And if you want more on that vehicle we were just talking about, check out episode five thirteen. So we had a launch earlier today, and this past weekend, Gene, I think it was it was pretty busy for space, huh? Yeah, there was a few events going on out there. First, uh, there was the uh, International Space Development Conference going on um, in uh, uh, San Diego. Uh, there were some interesting little little tweets being you know kind of fired about there, and that I was kind of taking a look at. Uh, of course, we had Space at Paris happening. Um, as well, which also made some news, and uh, a rather obscure event that occurred where you are, Sawyer, around uh, oh the Tucson area in Arizona, called uh, I believe it was called Space Fest Five. <laughs> yes, indeed, that was the fifth iteration of Space Fest, which uh, I attended this year after being told many times last year at the Northeast Astronomy Forum that if you love this you have to go. Yeah, that was that whole thing started a while back ago with um uh Kim Poor um who himself uh was was an extraordinarily accomplished uh space artist before an accident uh uh basically eliminated his his opportunities to work but he i mean some of his work work is just absolutely exquisite he had a a painting of um called morning i believe it was called morning flight um that depicted the orbiter uh going uh up you know in the into the clouds and so on and you would it hung the actual uh painting hung in the old Hayden planetarium for years and if you looked at it for a long time you'd say wait a minute that's a painting you know i, I mean that's how good it was i mean he, he he just got the nuances to the orbiter just so right i mean and that was and, that, and that's just one of his his works so if you ever get a chance go ahead and look him look him up on on the net look up his past work it's just absolutely incredible he he was really really a grand artist but I think this was his brainchild. Um, he's I, he ran a, and I think it's it's a, an operation called Nova Graphics, and which I have bought a lot of my. Um, I collect uh, Alan Bean's work, 
and I've bought a lot of my prints and and so on through 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 Nova Graphics. So, um, but um, again, Sawyer, this this event here it brings together a lot of the old Apollo astronauts, if I'm not mistaken, and it brings along a lot of other folks that are doing a lot of things in space science. So, why don't you just go ahead, take it on away, and and kind of kind of take us through what what you saw and. And, uh, and and all that, and I'm just gonna, you know, I'll, I'll just chime in and do some color because, uh, you know, gosh darn it, this is the thing I I I should have been at in this year, and unfortunately, due to a whole bunch of snafus, both you know, medical on my part, and unfortunately due to airlines, airline and weather issues, it just didn't happen this year. So we you know, better luck next time, I guess. But uh, I'm most eager to find out. Sorry, what what you uh, what you were able to to see and and hear uh, the past few days? Oh man, this was one heck of an event. It was uh, high up in the hills, overlooking the city of Tucson, and uh, Space Fest Five, the fifth iteration of this event, which is loaded with tons of scientists and speakers, and of course astronauts and people who have some relation to manned spaceflight. The event contained fifteen astronauts in one spot even though some of them were over different days. 15 astronauts in one spot for one weekend on top of a flight director, a mission controller, and a guy who recovered a spacecraft that sunk under the ocean. And that's just on the astronaut page of the website, if you look at it. <laughs> Sir, who is the... I know I know Glenn Lunny was the flight director. Who is, who is the uh, flight controller? That was uh, Ecom Cy Liebergott. Oh, no. Oh, Wow. Oh, man, I really wish I was there now. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, I, again, I spoke to pretty much every single one of them, and I can't say there was a bad one on the bunch. Every single one of them was, you know, they either had great stories or they were very patient with the people who were coming up to them. So it, it, imagine just walking into a room, and the first thing you see is a, is three-quarters of a square just filled with astronauts. That's the first thing you see when you walk into Space Fest. Everything wow. red, white, and blue with their names above them, their mission patches. It was one heck of an event on top of a bunch of other vendors selling some great space things, some meteorites, if I dare add. <laughs> good friend of ours and good friend of the show, Jeff Notkin yeah. of Airlight Meteorites, was there. Um, so, yeah, that was just part of the event was just the floor. On top of that, there were a bunch of speaking opportunities they had speakers every day you name it they had something talking about everything you can imagine they had space flight talks they had talks about other planets comets you name it they had it and it was spectacular so i think the only way to do it justice is to go through the major talks because there were a lot of small talks i didn't get to catch all of them but the major talks that i got to go to and uh, i think we'll go in order so the first one, actually, as much as this is loaded with astronauts, didn't really have to do with astronauts, the first one. This was Friday night. The event started on Friday. And uh, they had a guest speaking series. And the two speakers were Carolyn Porco, who you may know as a major part of Cassini, as well as Professor Brian Cox, who is best known for his work at CERN and the Large Hadron Collider, as well as his TV series, Wonders of Solar System in the Universe. And the two of them 
spoke, and then had a Q&A session. So I think we'll start there in terms of some of my favorite things. Now, Carolyn Porco talked a lot about Enceladus, and it's one of her favorite moons and one that they've worked on a lot in the last couple of years. The only problem was is that all of the information, or a large majority of the information, I should say, that she was telling us is stuff that we aren't allowed to tell you because it hasn't been published yet. So we were given some sneak information about some amazing finds on Enceladus and a little bit about the jets and everything, but can't really tell you that. But I can tell you one funny line that she did give about the jets on Enceladus, and I'll play that for you now. Okay, and this is very, I think, apropos that here we are at Space Fest mingling with the Apollo astronauts. I don't know if there are any in the audience. But you should know that we used, as an analogy for this process, we used the urine dumps that the Apollo astronauts made on their missions to the moon. Because when they dumped their urine to space, they even noted this. This is recorded in the annals of the Apollo missions. They dumped their urine to space, and immediately they're, you know, outside their window, they'd see all these beautiful crystals. Okay? Well, that's the process by which we think... Uh, we on the imaging team thought was producing a jet. So right early on, this we even put this in our 2006 publication, we thought chances were pretty good that the jets were actually geysers coming from uh, liquid water. So that was her from 2006, and I thought that was just a, a clever summary of a little bit of what she talked about. Wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fairly, um, how should I put it, uh, Interesting analogy <laughs> about what may be happening on a set Enceladus. So yeah, at this point now, be afraid if you dare continue on listening to this episode, because there are some very silly moments coming on later, as well as a bunch of serious topics. But I figured if I could use anything that was published in 2006, which was that, since it's already out, I, I figured that would be appropriate. And that pretty much summarized a little bit about her talk. It involved a lot about the jets and... I think that's a good enough explanation. <laughs> I'm not going to touch that with a basketball player from Warsaw. Sorry, everybody. I know it's a bad joke, but, you know, just I'm not going there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. Uh, so that was uh, Carolyn's talk. And then now we'll move on to Brian Cox and his talks. And if you've ever listened to his voice, he is one of the most profound speakers and one of the most mesmerizing speakers to ever go see. If you get a chance to, I would definitely suggest going to see him. One thing that he talked about, and this was actually later on in his talk, uh, after he talked about his work with CERN and the Large Hadron Collider and the Higgs particle, which he was a big factor in, he talked a little bit about something called the Royal Institute in London, and that's where they came up with things like the, the electric motor and some other major discoveries in science. And... Keep in mind, something that was written a while back, he's going to read, that I think sums up what our view of science still needs to be today, as does Brian. And I wanted to show you the founding document, the first paragraph of the founding documents, um, which was written in 1799 to raise money for this endeavour, which <coughs> led to many things, including, of course, like Faraday's discovery of the modern world, invention of the modern world. I love this piece of writing. I'll read it out to you. And the thing I love about it is that it's in this... Victorian language, or pre-Victorian language actually, is absolutely sure of itself, as it should be. 
He says, it is an undoubted truth. Any document that begins like that, I like. <laughs> it is an undoubted truth. That the successive improvements in the condition of man, from a state of ignorance and barbarism to that of the highest cultivation and refinement, are usually affected by the aid of machinery in procuring the necessaries, the comforts and the elegances of life. And that the preeminence of any people in civilization is, and ought ever to be, judged by the state of industry and mechanical improvements among them. It's a superb piece of writing. 1799, these people are concerned that the powerful people of the time do not understand that science and engineering and industry and invention and exploration are the key to prosperity. And so they write this down and they build this place. And as I said, um, within 30 years, they have this thing called an electric motor and a generator. Uh, show them correct. It's a pretty powerful statement from the late 1700s, and uh, do you agree that's still true today? To some extent, I guess. I mean, the, the again, Sawyer, just just to to make sure I got my head screwed on tight here. Um, it was essentially because I know I know I, I, a mutual friend. Well, Lucy used to show me these things too that were just written in this highfalutin, you know, snobby language almost. That that it almost seemed disconnected from the rest of the world. That this they just were not sort of popularizing science, and um, I think that's sorry. In all honesty, I think that's still a problem. We're not really really popular. You know, I, I think while we've got. Um, We've got finally ways of of popularizing what's going on. I mean, and you know, social media is doing it right and left. Um, it, it, we still there's still people out there that we haven't touched, and 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 that's that. I guess is really really the, really the core of the whole whole thing, and that's what we got to get better at. We've got to go ahead and 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 get to the folks that may not you know un, that may not really care about what's going on. And it may not be just in space. It may be in, in other sciences too. They may not, you know, really give a, a, a flying hoot about all this stuff, and you know, show that this stuff is a, it's cool, but b, it's it's changing your life for the better, not for the worse. And I think that's that, that's one of the things that, you know, that that sort of stodgy approach that that uh, Professor Cox was talking about. Um, it just really, really does not do the whole endeavor justice. I mean, every every everything has got their their lexicon, their words, their their buzzwords, and so on. And unfortunately, you got to use them. But if you can just explain the concepts easily to people that they can comprehend them and understand them, you will fund half the battle. And I think that's what Professor Cox is trying to do. I mean, he does have a he does have a. Um, a, a, a series back back home on the BBC and and so on that, that he he tries to take you know scientific discoveries. He's he also it's also been here on on America as well, where he talks you know space science and 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 all that and and tries to bring those concepts back. And he's one of those individuals that 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 does a grand job at it. Another friend of the show, Jeff Notkin, through Meteorite Men, has done the same thing. So. He, I guess if you want to say that, yeah, it's still true that 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 things are still kind of sort of stodgy, and if we can get rid of the stodginess, I think that that'll be half the battle. Exactly, it's about 
telling not just the elite but everyone about what's going on and who knows maybe we'll have the next electric motor in 30 years if we can knock some sense into people but we'll talk more about knocking sense into people actually in a couple of clips but um i want to actually play now the ending of professor cox's speech where he talks a little bit about science funding in the future and i think it's pretty prevalent with what's been going on today. So here we go. And I'll leave you with this thought. I, I spoke just a little bit about the, the challenges we all have in funding science. And we are always asked these questions. It's one perhaps calls for optimism, that although you know, the funding for space programs uh, rises and then falls, the funding for particle physics and technology rises and falls, it's always done so. And we've always had to make the argument to government and to taxpayers that the exploration of the universe is something that's worth doing. It almost seems ridiculous that we have to remind people that understanding the way that nature works is a good idea, but we do. And one of my favourite quotes about why we do this goes back actually to the 1830s, back to the Royal Institution, to a man called Humphrey Davy, actually just before, about 1800 actually. Um, he had to defend the investment in science in 1800, before the discovery of the electric motor. Uh, to politicians, to, to, to funders who felt that we knew enough about the universe in 1800. Just think about that. Think if we'd stop then. His answer, when challenged about the value of exploration, investment in science and knowledge, was this. He said, nothing is more fatal to the progress of the human mind than to presume that our views of science are ultimate, that our triumphs are complete, that there are no mysteries in nature, and there are no new worlds to conquer. He was right then, and he would be right now. Another profound statement. Yeah, but the funny thing is, too, I'll, the timing of it was very interesting. While you were away there, Sawyer, another event happened, and it was an anniversary of sorts, um, it, where another gentleman essentially said the same thing. Um, I get, you know, that gentleman was John Kennedy, and on May 25th, 1961, Kennedy put us on on the moon pledge, and uh, um, I, I kind of remember too another speech he made about a year earlier, a year later, at Rice University, um, where Kennedy basically said, "Well, you know, why do all of this?" And um, he said, "Well, because it's there, you know, because because space is, you know, space is that new ocean is that new hill mountain, and we're going to climb it." Um, and, uh, it's, it's the same, it's the same reason. It's the excitement to find out what's over the hill. Um, I remember in another speech Kennedy gave, he, he, he talked about throwing the, the proverbial hat over the wall and having to go, you know, go over the wall to go get it. And, uh, essentially that's what we did with Apollo. We threw our hat over the wall into, uh, into space though. And uh, you know we did get to the moon, but th that's just part and stop number one. So you know we've got to keep reaching and and keep understanding. And indeed, that that's another profound statement that was made there. But it was essentially cut from that same cloth. And uh, and and to to just say all oh, this whole thing's a bad idea and that we have so many problems left to solve here. Do you think the solutions to those problems here might lie out there somewhere? Um, we do have a, you know, as I'm sure was mentioned 
at the um, at the event, Sawyer, we do have here a finite set of resources here on this world. And we have to go other places to find those new resources, and we might have to go out to the out to to space to get those resources, and uh, to to continue life as as is here. Um, also, one of uh, again, I'll bring up that slide that that uh, Mark Ratterman, who is who couldn't be here tonight, loves to bring up from uh, Professor Ting. Uh, you go out trying to find X and you find Y and Z. Um, you always find the unexpected. Uh, and you never know where basic research is going to end up and where it's going to take you. Uh, it, it, it could take you in several different directions that could have profound effects 20, 30 years down the line. Um, so uh, again, we do this because we are trying to further not just the human knowledge base, not just um, you know to give new encyclopedia entries. We're doing that this whole stuff to make life better here, and I think that's what Professor Cox was trying to say. And this was addressed a couple days later on Sunday at the asteroid panel, and I have a clip which we'll play about that later. But we're in an interesting position. We're starting to use up our planet, and we got to move outward. So yeah, that was the end of uh, Professor Cox's talk, but I'm still going to play two more clips of him from the question and answer session afterwards. And this one actually ties into what we were just talking about, how the fact that we're using up our planet, and, um, and this has to do a little bit with about life, and if we're alone or not. And here's what he said, whether we are alone or not in the solar system and the universe. Take a listen. There are two possibilities. One is that intelligent life and civilization is so rare, and, and they could well be rare, that, that let's imagine there's only one in our galaxy. What responsibility does that confer on us? It would be ridiculous if we, if we you know... <laughs> squandered that. The, the one place where the, where the universe, in, in, let's say in the Milky Way, where the universe is able to look at itself and we just forget about it and mess it up. You know, if you watch Cosmos, Cal Sagan's worried about nuclear war, perhaps that's receded, but the other threats, climate change, etc., that, that we don't face seriously. So, so, so if, if we're alone in the Milky Way, it's ridiculous for us to behave like this. If we're not, it's also ridiculous, because there are other civilizations out there, and then we are one village amongst many, and it would be rather ridiculous if we spent the time, you know, on my vernacular kicking the out of each other, rather than actually getting on with being a unified planet. The only way you can behave as we do is if you haven't even thought about the question. Well, I will, I'll say that, I, I'm more, did, did uh, Professor Cox mention the Drake equation at all in that? No, he actually didn't. I mean, okay. this is just a brief mentioning of it, but I thought it was another interesting look at things of that, you know, it's either we're either we're being stupid, we're being stupid, or we're not thinking and being stupid. <laughs> well, I mean, the, 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 I'll go back to uh, the, the infamous Drake equation that was uh, compiled by Dr. Frank Drake and, and uh, Dr. Carl Sagan. Um it, it it it's it's a long equation trying to figure out the the probability of life elsewhere, and it goes through all kinds of variables, and then it gets to one variable where it says, okay, a civilization has you know gotten to a technological uh, point 
and is going through what uh, what Dr. Carl Sagan liked to call technological adolescence, just trying to figure out, you know, where the civilization is trying to figure out how to deal with its technology. Does it does it mature with it, or does it promptly use it to destroy itself? And if it goes, if that variable goes one way, there are millions of technological civilizations out there in the Milky Way galaxy. If it goes another way, there are just ten. So there's a there's a, a profound thought there, just you know, just on that alone. Um, the idea from what we're seeing, though, you know, I mean, with the Kepler data, and of course, Kepler has unfortunately run into a a buzzsaw in and of itself. But um, with the Kepler data that we have, we're we're kind of seeing planets that might be within the Goldilocks zone, and there might there may be a lot of you know Earth-like planets out there, and that are just you know ready for teeming with life, but they may not get beyond you know. I don't know, algae. <laughs> so perhaps um, maybe Dr. Maybe uh, Professor Cox is right. Maybe, you know, and Carl Sagan had thought the same thing where, you know, where there may be, you know, places that are just teeming with, you know, multicellular animals, but big beasts and thinking beings may be comparatively rare. So you know these are awesome questions, and you know I you know the the, the man's right. You, you've got to you know you've got to think of all the variables and and so on. Yes, indeed. So that was the Friday event. Now I'm going to skip Saturday because on Saturday there was a keynote. There was a banquet and a keynote, and the keynote speaker was Rick Tumlinson of Deep Space Industries, which I'm not going to play because a I was too far away to record it, but b we'll hear from him later on in the show when we get to the asteroid panel, but. This was one of my favorite panels that we got to by far, and this was the Apollo panel. Yeah. Um, I First, before we even get into this, I have to thank uh, somebody, a, a very good uh, uh, very good friend of mine on Twitter, Jay MacArthur, who um, sort of lifted the veil for me on this one since I couldn't be there. She writes a blog uh, called Pad39A, called uh, On Top of the World. Uh, which is basically her her visit to uh, Pad Thirty Nine A. Uh, it's called uh, the uh, uh, URL is Pad Thirty Nine A dot blogspot dot com if anybody's interested. And um, she wrote a really really good blow by blow blog post of that panel. So if anybody wants to go ahead, just for back history after listening to the program wants to go ahead and dive into this a little bit more uh check out uh, uh that particular blog panel and uh again thank you uh jane MacArthur, for doing such a magnificent job in translating that yes indeed and we will link to that blog in the show notes so you can read it's essentially an entire transcript of the event but i'm going to play some of my favorite clips that i thought that we would discuss the panel included jim mcdivitt Bruce McCandless, Fred Hayes, Dick Gordon, Walt Cunningham, Ed Mitchell, and it was moderated by Brian Cox. So, keep that in mind. Now, it went in chronological order in terms of where they were sitting and how they spoke. And uh, Jim McDivitt, who we're going to try and get on the show, had some great things to say. And I'm going to play one of his clips now, which talked about an interesting thing with money. Because we talk about now money in the space program and how bad it is. Well, it wasn't always that way. 
when uh, they asked Jim Webb, who was an NASA administrator, how much he thought it was going to take to go to the moon uh, when Congress did, uh, he, he pulled the engineers and they came up with $20 billion. So he went to Congress and asked for $40 billion, which they approved. So, and we did it for about $22 billion. Uh, the entire time that I was running the program, we had, I had lots of money. I never had to worry about running out of money. We were very, not exactly cavalier, but we certainly um, did things a little differently in those days. I remember when uh, Rocket Patron called me one day and said, uh, you know, they're having a lot of trouble over there on the Saturn V, and Dick Smith needs some money. Do you have any extra money? So I, you know, we had the old black phones. I put them on hold, checked with my guys, and I called back and said, yeah, we got 50 million we can spare. He said, okay, ship it over there. Uh, I talked to Charlie Bolin a couple years ago, who's an NASA administrator today, he almost cracked his drawers when I told him how he did it. <laughs> the NASA administrator at that time during Apollo um, was probably, um, I think, the most politically astute or one of the more politically astute NASA administrators that we've had, um, that was James Webb. And as such, the James Webb Space Telescope is named after him. But um, he just knew where all the levers were, and he knew how to play Washington. And as such, he knew what he needed to do to go ahead and make the program work. And as... um, everybody's favorite starship engineer would say, you know, you always multiply your repair estimates by a factor of four. And that's essentially what James Webb did. And and by the way, because he was, he was such a grand administrator. Um, this is how Skylab got paid for in some instances. And this is also how, um, the you know this is probably also how I think ASTP may have gotten paid for. I know that uh, Viking One and Viking Two were called Jim Webb Specials because the funds from those uh, came from the overestimation of Apollo. So uh, again, uh, Jim McDivitt's absolutely correct. Uh, the guy, you know, James Webb knew where the levers were. He knew how to how to get things done and so on. And by the way, Webb was not an engineer. He was an attorney by trade uh, when um, when Kennedy appointed him. And in all honesty, he didn't even want the job, but he 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 ended up with it. And, and essentially is probably going to go down in history as one of NASA's best administrators. Yes, indeed. And uh, after his flight, he then went into sort of the administrative side, which is bizarre. As he mentioned, he worked a little bit with Apollo, and then um, after that, he was pretty much asked to head the shuttle program. And um, he took a look at it and looked at the goal that Congress wanted and the funding, and he said it wasn't going to happen. The shuttle that they wanted wasn't going to happen with that funding, and according to him, it didn't. But he had a really interesting view after having dealt with all of that on uh, manned spaceflight and uh, with the sequester, too. So I'll play that since that word has been fun lately. And, and that's the world that we're going to be in. It's a real world. And with sequestration in the United States today and uh, the cost of doing these things, I think it's going to be very difficult to do other big 
man programs. I know that's not what my buddies are going to say, but uh, having, having been in that seat where I'm trying to fund these things and build them on time, it's a lot different environment today than we had back in the 60s. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, there was there was much more there was much more commitment from the White House back then on the lunar program. And there was much more commitment from Congress um, on the lunar program. And of course, um, I think we had the fact that we had a martyred president who this was his signature program. We were going to do it for for our fallen president, and uh, um, that I think was part of it. Now, you know, as we have said on this program a few times, um, if uh, if sequestration continues to be a way of life uh, next year, uh, don't look for commercial crew to happen any time after. Uh, don't look for commercial crew to happen on time. Is what I'm saying. This is also one of the reasons why we are now paying. If we don't make it, those those seats are going to go up, and it's it's just going to continue to eat into our ability to go ahead and get uh, get the crew get uh, our our crews launched from U.S. soil again. So Jim McDivitt's right, and he's being a realist about it because he's been there. He's been had to deal with these fights, and yeah, by the way, he was absolutely correct with the shuttle too. Um, in the initial flight rate, if if history um, was correct, uh, that folks were looking at it was fifty flights a year, five zero. That was not going to happen, um, and that was going to be the only reason. That was going to be the only way the shuttle was going to go ahead and be, you know, the 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 profitable, you know, workhorse that everybody thought it was going to be. And uh, McDivitt, being the 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 savvy uh, engineer that he is. Just said, you know, this that that's that's horse hockey. That's not going to happen. So um, he he was dead on, and and it, I guess it really takes somebody in that administrator seat to go ahead and and understand the 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 you know the the, the problems that uh, that are out there. Which, by the way, you cut out a little bit while you were talking about um, the price of over seventy million dollars for a Soyuz seat. To quote Jim McDivitt, quote unquote, it sucks. You know, I mean, to me, it it was it was you know penny wise and pound foolish, and we tend to be that way here in the U.S. when it comes to our space program. It's just ridiculous. Exactly, it's a whole different mentality, which um, is what Jim McDivitt talked about as well. I hope that that's the kind of attitude that we'll have in the future, but I see it pooping off. <laughs> And when I flew on Gemini, when I flew on Gemini Four, <laughs> when, I, when I flew on Gemini Four, we couldn't get the launch umbilical tower down. And the way they finally got it down was two mechanics got wouldn't handle brooms and pushed the circuit breakers together so that they could get the thing down. Probably burned up every wire that we had. But, but that's an attitude that I hope we can sort of resurrect. Which I should add that I should have prefaced with is that prior to the mentality he was talking about was during Apollo 12 when it was a little cloudy and there was a good chance of thunderstorms and they still gave the go to launch. Which, if you recall, the vehicle was then struck by lightning twice but still went on to the moon. And that's the attitude that he was talking about. Well, the vehicle kind of created its own lightning going up. But, uh, um, yeah, well, that that was also a, a, a piece of... I just, I, I want to say classic stupidity. 
we will not do that again because this is what's going to happen to your spacecraft. Everything, you know, all your primaries are going to go out. You're going to go to the moon on, on your backups. So y- you you want to make sure that you don't realize, you know, you learn from the mistakes. It's it's not going, you know, I th- I, I think what he's talking about is, is just, um, he, he's not talking about prevailing with go fever, I think. He's talking more about... Um, you know, learning from the mistakes and making sure you don't repeat them. But, uh, but having that, that, you know, having the, the mentality of we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do it right. And we're going to, you know, everybody's going to come home in one piece. I think that, that, that might be what he's talking about. I mean, back then, um, in some instances we didn't know what we were doing. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. And now I guess maturity sunk in a little bit and we know what we're doing. Um, so I'll, I'll take a little umbrage with that for, for, from that, that, uh, that, that standpoint. But I think what McDivitt's saying is, is we've learned from mistakes we're, and, and, and you press forward. No, it was actually the exact opposite. He was talking about the risk adverse society that we have now. And he well, disagrees yeah. with that. Well, I agree. And I agree with him there. I mean, you have to, but you know, risk has to be managed. Um, you 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 think of every possibility that you could possibly think of that could that might go wrong, and you try to go ahead and 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 minimize the risk as much as you can, but you can't live under your bed forever. You know, you, I mean, getting up in the morning is a risk. Going outside and getting in your car is a risk, and those are things that you can't you can't you know you can't foresee so um he's absolutely right we have and and we've we've talked about this on the program before with by the way i think one of the members of the of that particular panel walt cunningham um on being too risk adverse and you know you've got to sometimes you just have to say you know let's just go with what we got um and and just make sure that you've got everything you know in one piece. Now I, I can already hear people echoing about Mars One and 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 that whole idea of sending forty people over to Mars on a one way trip and all this other stuff. Yeah, um, yeah uh, that is you know I've got my own opinion on, on that whole whole thing. I don't think it's the way to go. You know there are still risks in, in, involved going to Mars. We've got to counter those risks, and that and that's what ISS is, is trying to teach us to do right now. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, again, we're learning about long duration spaceflight with ISS. We're trying to counter the risks going forward to Mars with the knowledge that we're building with ISS. So, you know, it's it's the same thing with Gemini. We proved the uh, orbital rendezvous concept that was uh, put together by uh, Dr. Buzz Aldrin. Um, and if we could prove uh, that two objects can rendezvous in space, guess what? We're going to the moon because now lunar orbit rendezvous will work. So, you know, I, you know, again, we just, we just prove, we just prove the methods, prove our, our technologies, and then, you know, try to think of every possible risk that we can try to mitigate but there's always going to be that gotcha out there, that unforeseen bug that's going to get, going to nip at your tail. Look at Apollo 13. Um, that's that that that's going to bite you, and and you can't avoid that. 
you just if if it happens, you deal and and you move forward. And unfortunately, maybe maybe the man's right. Maybe we have gotten too risk adverse, and maybe that's that's where that's why we're not pressing forward now. I don't know. That's 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 somebody. That's that's a question for everybody to look into their soul. That's listening to this program right now to ask themselves. You know, have we gotten too risk adverse? And I'll put that question out there for for letters or or commentary. Uh, if if anybody is so inclined. Yeah, and by the way, going back to the Apollo 12 thing, uh, Brian Cox asked Dick Gordon about uh, what he was just told about the going anyway in the Apollo 12 launch. How did you feel when um, when Jim launched you into a thundercloud? <laughs> well, I just now heard him confess that he didn't know whether he didn't know whether the parachutes were going to work or not. <laughs> I didn't care. He didn't. <laughs> Well, he, he made the right decision, I'll put it that way. We'd have been just as dead from Earth orbit as we would have been coming back from the moon. If you couldn't hear what everyone was laughing about, that was Jim McDivitt saying he didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea was, you know, is the heat shield damaged? Is, is our, And then the idea was, well, will the parach- were, were, were the parachutes hit? Because there are, are heaters in the parachutes, you know, apparently there are heaters in the parachutes or, you know, near the parachutes to make them unfurl. And the whole idea is, well, these things could be ice cubes by the time they return. Well, the idea was, well, the crew will be just as dead tomorrow if we bring them, to, you know, now if we bring them home. So we might as well go ahead and send them to the moon. So that that was that was the, the going thought. It was kind of a morbid thing, but it was, it was um, you know, and, and you gambled, and in this case you win. But, yeah, again, one, one, once more. Are we risk adverse? All right. So Fred Hayes, you may know famously more from Apollo 13, but he was also with the approach and landing tests and a big part of the space shuttle program. And he had something really interesting talking about the shuttle and obviously with the tight budget, some things that they had to cut. And this will explain a lot about Challenger. Uh, We had to deal with half the monies of the program plan. And we took a lot of risk because when you're, you're balancing uh, uh, the money you have versus the requirements of what your content you have in the program, the frills, if you really want to look at them that way, and trying to make schedule. You're always trying to make schedule uh, because there's a, a thing you've got to deal with of changing the administrations. And we were facing one uh, where the shuttle was started by Nixon and Jimmy Carter, President Carter, had come in. We took great risk, uh, OB-99 Challenger, which uh, had the accident on launch, uh, was not supposed to be a flight vehicle, that was OB-99. It was our structural uh, test article. So we abandoned fatigue tests, which really wasn't very much risk uh, because we knew we weren't gonna fly the number of flights. We had scatter factor eight in the design, but we only took it to 80% loads and we, mathematically extrapolated from there on loads to turn it into a flight vehicle. Uh, the only back thermal we did in the program, whereas we did full-scale vehicles in Apollo, we did one payload bay door and we did one ohm spot. We said we'll do the rest on orbit. Uh, vibroacoustic really scared me. We, we kept the aft end uh, F section vibroacoustic, but we deleted the crew cabin. And the DB levels are the uh, 
uh, acoustic stress uh, is much higher on shuttle than it was on Apollo, where we were sitting way up high on top of the stack. Uh, the engines uh, are very close to that, certainly that aft end of the shuttle. In fact, we had to beef up the facility, Johnson, to put more horns in to uh, reach the levels uh, for testing that aft section. Scary. Well, that only really just solidifies the thought. It was probably the bravest flight test that had ever been 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 done, period. Uh, and how much risk that uh, truly uh, Bob Crippen and John Young took took for that two day flight. I kind of wonder too, Sawyer. Have have did did the astronauts on the panel did they mention if they were being you know kind of pinged for, about any of their knowledge um, on the Apollo command service module or even for the SLS, if they were being pinged for any of their knowledge on that. Um, and, and has that knowledge been coming back to NASA and, and uh, have they, have they been, have there been in discussion with the designers of, of both said vehicles? Well, no, actually they, they mentioned that they kind of wish that NASA had talked to them. So, uh, it, you know, it, it's interesting. Oops. Now, one thing I want to move on to, since uh, I'm running short on time here, is um, obviously we've talked a lot about the future and the future of manned spaceflight and where we think we should go. And I think the best way to take a look at this is just to listen to all the answers that everyone said, because they were actually asked a question. It turned into what advice they would give for the youngsters who are in the audience, and it turned into essentially the future of manned spaceflight. So um, I'm going to play Jim McDivitt, Ed Mitchell, Bruce McCandless, and Walt Cunningham. I'm going to play their individual views and then another short segment, which Ed and Walt talk together. So um, listen closely. We'll give your opinions. I think that uh, manned spaceflight has peaked out. My astronaut buddies are going to kill me. But it's, it's going to be very difficult to be sending people to Mars and other places like that when you can sell robots to do the job. And I, if I were going to be a program manager again, I would stick with uh, robotics. Uh, when, when we were on the moon, uh, the guys could only go so far from the lunar module, they always had to be able to come back. But you know, we had a rover up there that could go probably 100 miles. If you put it in a straight line, it'd go 100 miles instead of just a short, short distance. Uh, when you, when you, one time we were trying to increase the payload on the shuttle. The obvious thing to do is to take the whole crew compartment out. It had auto land system and, and a com- other computer handled launch. So it, I think we're going to see more and more and more uh, automated stuff unmanned. You know, if you look at the military today, more and more vehicles are unmanned. And that's, I think that's the way the world's going. And now here's Ed Mitchell. The future is going to have to be quite different than it has been right now. We are overpopulating a planet. We are running out of uh, renewable resources. We're going to have to look to space and to other uh, planets, perhaps, other ways to keep this civilization going. And uh, the space effort and going to Mars and perhaps learning in due course to even go beyond our solar system is what it's got to be about because I don't... I think the best estimates right now, we're going to have trouble getting through this century uh, and keeping things going well. So let's be bold. Let's look at the idea that 
we're in a, a very small solar system that has uh, right now endangered since the beginning of the 20th century. The population has moved from 1.9 billion people to over 7 billion people in one century. And the consumption is uh, getting totally out of hand. So we've got some serious problems and perhaps continuing to go into space and learning to develop tools that we don't now have is a, one of the ways out of this and we're going to have to do it. I suggest we look at that very seriously. Here's Bruce McCandless, who you may know best for flying the man maneuvering unit untethered for the first time. As you look up here at this panel of fossils, uh, <laughs> what we have done uh, collectively in, in Apollo and, and Space Shuttle uh, is not something that you need to repeat. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, basically, you need to, if you will, stand on our shoulders and go do something bigger and better. The, uh, the programs are changing, but uh, space flight uh, is transitioning uh, in, into a two-pronged effort, a, uh, a commercial, if you will, effort, which uh, reminds me, although before my time, very much of what aviation must have been like in the 1920s as we're getting uh, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial and private endeavors with a much, much broader uh, base for both flying and uh, participating in engineering support and management roles. And we will be continuing uh, exploration beyond Earth orbit uh, Depending on numerous factors, uh, it may be uh, all U.S. or it may be international collaboration or a mixture of the two. And probably the, the best advice, and I'm not good at giving advice, would be is to try to think uh, what things will be like uh, by the time you individually are in your late 20s or early 30s and to pursue a course of education and, and early job assignments it would make you the best qualified for, for whatever interests you and then find something that interests you and, and go for it. All right, and next up is Walt Cunningham, who we had back on the show, if you remember, on episode 223 in 2010. Here's his view. I'm one of those people, that I want to go back to Mars too, with or without people. But I really want to do it with people because we don't really consider something's been explored or moved society forward until we get there. Now, are we going to do that? I don't know. Jim, uh, <laughs> maybe right. But I don't want to do it to find life. I don't know if we're going to find life. If we do, it'll be a scientific interest. It'll be a very uh, modular kind of form. Uh, but in order to get to Mars, there's all kinds of problems that we have to solve. And to do that, you're going to have people, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people end up working on it. And when you go back and you look at Apollo, we didn't have that in mind at the time we were doing it. But I believe that the technology that rolled out of Apollo and made it into private industry really has been a driving force for at least 30 years after Apollo. The same thing is true with anything else when you tackle that's considered impossible. Almost everything in the history of our Earth here and human humanity, we've dealt with things like that and gone out and solved them, not even knowing the value later on, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. 
So I think that that's the real return, and that's why I want to go to Mars, even if we never find a thing there. I'm not interested in mining it or bringing back helium-3 from the moon or any of those kind of things. I just think the technology that you have to develop to do it is going to benefit all of us. And lastly, here's once again Ed Mitchell and Walt Cunningham with some more of their thoughts. Yes, going to the moon back to 40 or 50 years ago uh, was doable, but it was difficult. We didn't have the technologies. They had to be developed. We had the mindset. We had to get the people in place, the engineering in such a place. And same thing with going to Mars. Uh, we're already thinking about it. We've sent unmanned vehicles. We've sent technology there. So it's just a progressive step in the human development. Uh, one more step to get... If, if somebody had told me back in the 1950s that I might be able to go to the moon, it would have been ridiculous. It was, it was ridiculous to think about it going to the moon in the 1950s. But not in the 60s. <laughs> yes, that's right. But you see, now, if I was to tell you or any of the young people out here in the audience, they could go to Mars, now that's a whole lot more believable and it's a whole yeah. lot more uh, sensible today than it was back in the 50s talking about going to the moon. So we don't know, but you've got to be willing to tackle those things to move us forward. I couldn't have said that better myself. Um... As as far as as far as uh, Walt Cunningham's comments for the, that last part, uh, I I I kind of remember too, um, even uh, uh, you know reading what was a couple of the talks I used to do on Apollo is um, I'd say if you were walking down the the street with a with uh, your friend it's like say nineteen thirty five thirty six and you look up 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 at the moon and you go. Hey, you think we'll ever? You think we'll ever get guys up there? And your friend, your friend, looks up at the moon and just pauses for a moment and goes, "Nah, we'll never do that." And you would, you'd think your friend was wrapped pretty tight that he he was, you know, had a full capacity of his senses and so on. But if your friend said, oh, yeah, not only are we going to get there, but we're going to get there in, in another 30, 35 years, um, you'd probably want to walk across the street from your friend there because you'd, you'd think he was, he was nuts. And lo and behold, we don't think anything like that anymore more when it comes to uh, going to other worlds now. I mean, we, Apollo taught us, if anything, that any of these worlds are in our grasps if we want to work for it. And that's what Walt Cunningham was, was leaving us with that question. How badly do we want this? And that's something we, as a, as a nation right now, are grappling with. Exactly. But on top of that, you know, on top of that ending part, which I think is a big statement, we have Walt who's saying, go to Mars. You've got Bruce that's saying, we just need to get out into the solar system. And then you've got Jim McDivitt who's saying, we're not going anywhere at this rate. So what do you think of those opinions? Well, with Jim, with Jim McDivitt, I mean, if, if you look at the X-39B, the X-37B, you know, and, and other unmanned, manned, unmanned piloted stuff that's going on, yeah, automation's take, taking over. Um, going to, to, to Mars. Yeah. We've got, you know, our robotic, uh, visitors there now, and we have a fleet of, of, uh, 
you know, of, uh, you know, orbiting vehicles up there now. But if you talk to S- Steve Squires and so on, they will tell you flat out that these guys are just our vanguards. These guys are just there to pave the way for humanity later on. And they, the folks that are building the robots are saying the robots are not the be all and end all of these things. We want humans to go there. So I, I don't want to discount what, what Jim McDivitt said. He is right to some extent. We might be seeing more robotic ro- robotic missions to other worlds elsewhere. But again, these are just things to pave the way for us. These are not our replacements. And I, I kind of take just a little umbrage with, with Jim McDivitt. Um, Bruce McCandless, to an extent, is right with the commercial aspects of it. But as I've said on this program before, commercial means profit. And um, when you throw profit into the mix, how are you going to make the profit in space? Well, later on, on episode two of this, we're going to learn about two companies that are trying to do just that. There, there may be some gold in their, than their hills, but you have to go ahead and really, really outlay the money to go ahead and get there. Um, so the right now for the foreseeable future, the only thing I see, you know, there are asteroid mining things going on, which we will talk about later. Um, but right now for the foreseeable future, I see the, the satellite launch business getting, getting a a good kick in the, in the, uh, in the pants as a result of, uh, what's going on with SpaceX and, and a few other, other companies. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying about the commercialization, and it would be interesting talking about, you know, to talk about the commercialization with asteroids, and I have some clips about that, and then also to talk about Mars and, you know, the thoughts of the scientists on humans going there and humans versus robots, which we have coming up next week. And, of course, we'll hope you'll be back next week when we talk about the Mars panel and the asteroid panel and some interesting discussions between deep space industries, planetary resources, and more. So in the meantime, thank you for joining us for this episode, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer, and looking forward to part two of this. Me too. We hope you'll be back for part two, but until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever may be where you are. Go Space Fest, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) 